You're listening to 340B Unscripted. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. This is episode 16. I'm Greg Wilson, and I'm here with Rob Nahoopy. Hey, Rob, how's it going? Greg, it is going. Um, if I sound a little different today, it's because I'm off-site. I'm actually uh, attending a HRSA audit, and of course, we don't share those details uh, publicly. So, But uh, on-site here uh, for second day two of a HRSA audit, so we're recording in the morning uh, before I have to get to work. Yeah, busy, busy week of auditing here leading up to Coalition Bags Packed for San Diego. Nope, I've got to go home, wash clothes, and then repack. Uh, be ready to leave uh, first thing Monday morning. Yeah, so if you're you're listening to this the day of our uh, the the day that this podcast episode drops, you know you're probably traveling to uh, Coalition, or you know maybe you're situated at Coalition. We've got um, at the end of the episode, we're going to kind of share you know some sessions that we think are going to be really helpful for uh, 340B service providers to uh, to attend some clients and friends that we have that are in the 340B space that are sharing lots of great insights. So we'll uh, we'll round out the episode with a uh, kind of an overview of, of, of what to look for when you're at Coalition. But Rob, let, let's maybe start with discussion around the ASAP 340B Coalition policy principles. So we've seen in the news this week, there's a few different documents out circulating uh, that provide a little more detail with regard to this new advocacy's campaign's approach to 340B program reform. Um, maybe high level, what, what are your thoughts on the, the strategic approach that this organization's taken? Oh my gosh, uh, you know, you're, you're right there, you know, there's a couple of news outlets have kind of reported um, further details that they're hearing about these recommendations and and as I read through them, I was it was it was impressive, um, and not say impressive in a, in a good way for hospitals, but it, the what they put in there and how they did. It. And you know, I, I do have to agree, right? So objectively, right, I could be objective about the 340B program and thinking about kind of the strategy that pharma used here. I, I gotta say, it's um, I didn't see it coming, right? First of all, I didn't I didn't see this coming. Just didn't see you know NAC and pharma partnering to create recommendations and. Um, and objectively, the strategic move—it's—it's uh, it's impressive, right? I, I think we can, you know, judge the merits of, of what what it is, and and it's, it's now the right time and all this stuff. But I, I think I heard somebody say it. I think the best way to say it, it feels like farmers playing chess, and the rest of us are playing checkers here. Um, yeah. If you read through this document, they've got a lot of wins if something like this were to go through, uh, compared to what the covered entities are receiving, um, and only some of the covered entities, of course. Kind of what's. But, you know, aside from that, right, because I like to think of it as, you know, in the last 10 years, uh, we're, you know, starting turnkey and, and going from clinical as a pharmacist and a pharmacy director to having to learn how to run a business. Um, and, and we as a team now, we've got so many intelligent people on our leadership team and we make great strategic decisions, I think, you know, new services to start that would benefit hospitals or grantees or covered entities in general. And I don't know if we've ever had such a incredible strategic move like this now not quite the same we're not doing the same thing here but uh, I, just just thinking about it i just i don't know if we would have been able to come up with something like that so i i'm impressed by it at the same time sort of scared of uh, all these things going through for hospitals and what that could mean 
And I do think it's a timing issue. I mean, what are your thoughts on the timing of trying to impact hospitals this way right now? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, hospital covered entities probably say there's there's never going to be a good time to be faced with, with with something like this. But I think right now, timing is really terrible for for hospitals to you know see a really significant threat to the 340b program most of these hospitals are are still battling uh issues with regard to staffing so we'll talk about the principles but th there's a lot of proposed changes here that are going to put a significant amount of effort on covered entities um to to execute and hospitals just struggling with keeping the doors open and keeping their um their shifts staffed also, those hospitals are struggling with really razor thin margins, sometimes operating in the red. You know, I know, Rob, you've, you've had a chance to take a look at the, the 340B health contract pharmacy survey. And, you know, the financial impact of the manufacturer restrictions from the last couple of years is significant. And they're just reporting on the first five manufacturers. So, so the data that's reported in that survey is, you know, re really and kind of an underestimate of what the total impact has been, you know the contract pharmacy restrictions that were implemented in 2020 or starting to be implemented in 2020, again, suspiciously occurred at a time where covered entities were distracted by the strains of managing the COVID pandemic. And I think, you know, right now, covered entities really haven't been focused on, you know, the strategic discussions around how the 340B program might need to be reformed for the better. Um, and maybe we're caught a little bit blindsided by, by this approach. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's a good time. You know, I, I do think that 340 Health Report, you know, 633 hospitals, uh, there are some key points that are worth mentioning that, again, I think it's probably why there's some impact. But again, I think there's many other things, right? Inflation and just kind of workforce changes and cost of goods and um, investment, right? All multifactorial reasons why health systems and hospitals and grantees aren't doing well right now. But um, but you're right. Um, the, you know, the, sh the report showed, and this is um, reported publicly, um, so I think we can share this, but uh, those five manufacturers just from 2020 to 2021 was about 1.1 billion lost um, savings across all, all covered entities. And that's in, that's that's a big dollar number to recover, yeah. right? Especially when it wasn't budgeted or planned on. But even bigger was critical access hospitals. And, and we work with a lot of critical access hospitals. So we know that, um, you know, they don't have as many infusion drugs. They have a small number of subset of patients, but they often do have clinics. They almost function you know, in part like um, FQHCs where they have rural health clinics often in their areas because there just isn't any other services clinically. And yeah, so critical access hospitals are primary care. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's almost typically primary care, but 49% loss of savings for critical access hospitals. I was like, wow. I mean, call it 50, right? It's 1% away. Yeah, half. And I don't know about you, but the one that actually I learned um, and I, because I didn't think about and I should have was that the reason why this is actually important for many of these manufacturers, or, or this is not, I'm going to say this is potential, right? We don't actually know all the reasons because they, 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 there's definitely some farmers voice other reasons, you know, compliance and duplicate discounts, but penny pricing penalty avoidance was yeah. new for me, thinking about the fact that, you know, as people, if manufacturers raise their price faster inflation, they're subject to these penny pricing penalties. And then, you know, and a large volume goes through the retail side. Well, if they can cut that volume of penny pricing penalty impact out, that's a big windfall for them. So not selling their drugs at lower cost. So I didn't quite think about that angle. Just thought savings in general was their goal. But but that, you know, avoiding penny price penalty drugs would be a massive savings for those manufacturers impacted by that. So it'd be interesting to do a cross cut and see how many manufacturers who have taken away pricing actually have been um, hit with penny pricing penalties. Um, it's uh, just not something I looked at before. Yeah. 
All right. Well, let's let's go through the uh, the the principles. They they there's there's a fairly you know dense um, document again circulating that kind of goes into a little bit more detail with regard to you know proposed changes to patient definition, hospital eligibility, contract pharmacy, um, you know transparency, patient affordability, and we can just maybe start at the top. You know, I think you know the the you know ASAP 340B um, proposal really you know attempts to change the intent of the 340B program. And I think in the language of, you know, their, their press release, so the, you know, the, the, the high level overview of their principles, you know, they're re really targeting large disproportionate share hospitals and, and implying in their proposals that, that those hospitals really aren't part of the true safety net for, um, you know, underserved communities. So I think that's something that, you know, our hospital um, constituents, our hospital colleagues are going to disagree with, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, and, and that's what we should point out, right? There's lots of provisions as you go through. And when we read the initial kind of high level recommendations, it really didn't say, it did say at one point, in you know, one part, I think it's about qualification that critical access hospitals and so community hospitals should be left alone with the current process, right? For qualification of the hospital itself. But as as the, these details were kind of provided, um, it's more than just that. Um, and, you know, even just looking at that first section, um, the patient definition section as they, they, you know, really try and clamp down on the definition a little here. Yeah. Um, you know, at the very end, they say they talk about referrals, right? And we thought they were going to try and cut referrals out. Well, yeah, they are cutting, you know, the recommendations to cut referrals out, but not for critical access hospitals and not for sole community hospitals and not for grantees. So this would just apply to the larger, more urban hospitals. The other part was you have to be um, rural, right, in most cases. So yeah. interesting that even, even certain things like referral capture is, is really only being recommended to be removed for certain hospital types, the, the more urban hospitals. I'm not sure what your thought. If there's other uh, um, patient definition impacts that you saw that were critical like that. Yeah, I mean, re referrals, you know, what they're talking about with referrals, I mean, it's going to create strict limitations, preventing your your RRCs and your DISH hospitals, you know, and those that, that operate primary care services. So if you've got a hospital-based family medicine clinic or internal medicine clinic, you know, those, those the, you know, those, um, you know, prescriptions coming out of those, uh, you know, referral prescriptions coming out of those primary care visits at those hospitals aren't going to qualify. And it just doesn't make sense that you wouldn't allow that, uh, you know, to qualify in the same manner that you would at a critical access hospital at a, and an SCH or even at a, a, a grantee program that's providing um, uh, primary care. You know, I think one of the one of the bullet points around patient definition is that only prescriptions that are directly related to a medical condition um, for care that was sought at the covered entity should qualify. So now we're, we're talking about kind of like a vague clinical component to patient definition. I don't know how they envisioned that that would be operationalized. Are we talking about ICD-10 code matching with prescriptions? I mean, there's a lot of drugs out there that are used for off-label purposes, um, you know, to manage medical conditions. I don't know how they're, you know, envisioning a covered entity would limit qualification of prescriptions that are directly related to a medical condition. Hard to kind of automate based on the, the methodologies that covered entities are using to, to manage their, their retail pharmacy programs. Well, and, and we saw this a little with orphan drug exclusion when HRSA did for that brief moment in time had the um, guidance that uh, it orphan drug exclusion only applied to the um, orphan designation that it received. And so if yeah. you're using it for a, a different indication, then, then, then it was designated for as an orphan, then you could buy it on 340B. And so we worked with coverage to actually try and do that. And it was a pain. Because that yeah. means you're looking in the medical record for diagnoses and, and recording that in case, you know, an audit came through and as part of the HRSA audits at that point in time. So 
yeah, doing that for all retail prescriptions, not just the orphans for those certain hospitals, that's going to be a big lift. Yeah. You know, another thing that they kind of describe in, in their proposal for a, maybe a tightened patient definition is that the covered entity has got to maintain consistent responsibility of care. And again, I think you're targeting acute care facilities here. You know, what's what what are the parameters of consistent responsibility of care if you've had heart surgery and, you know, patients may be being seen and follow up at a, you know, surgery clinic, you know, does that con- constitute consistent responsibility for care? If the patient has a, you know, a, a catastrophic kind of post-surgical event, they're going to go back to the hospital where they had the heart surgery. So, you know, it seems like we're, again, kind of carving out acute care services as eligible services under the 340B program. It's, it's some of those provisions. I'm, I'm interested how that you know, what the, what the legislation would look like around that, what the rules around that would look like, because uh, same thing, right? It's it's almost you're adding more things that are hard to actually do in practice. Um, yeah. I think part of the program's the way it is, is because from operational way, that's, that's you know, an efficient way to do it. And even, even arguably, it's not very efficient today with everything that we have to do to qualify prescriptions and the rules we have to put into place. But, right, I think this makes it even more operationally difficult to be compliant. Yeah. And then, and then another provision in there, proposal to change patient definition and again excluding so this wouldn't apply to critical access or sole community hospitals but so dish and rrc hospitals can't qualify claims under telehealth encounters and all covered entities would require their 340b eligible patients to have either a visit once every 12 months for hospitals or every two years for a um a grantee so again really kind of boxing out this innovative approach to care delivery where we're allowing patients you know to see their providers via some type of uh telemedicine visit well and you know and i agree with you on this one it feels like especially in a rural community where patients maybe can't ambulate as well or can't drive in or you know what about when there's inclement weather yeah. and all these things especially in the more northern states it's like and i get they're just saying well they have one every once in a while but the fact that we're not including telehealth where that might be a viable option for stable patients who yeah. do need to be seen and possibly need to get blood drawn but could get home home infusion or you know home lab and, and different you know ways for that they can be supported so it's it's a feels a bit backwards to not allow telehealth but again interesting that it, it only targets the larger hospitals and before we jump off this What's eerily absent, especially when you think about referral and telehealth, is pediatric. Like we have our pediatric hospitals that, yeah. that take care of a massive percent of Medicaid patients and, and underinsured or uninsured patients. And the fact that they would, you know, if you're looking at, well, what hospitals do we want to make sure we, we preserve because they're so critical for patient care, the fact that pediatric hospitals weren't included in some of these carve outs or whatever we want to call them, um, it feels like a miss to me. Yeah. That's a great call out, Rob. I know I had mentioned that, but you're right. You know, we're talking, you know, RRCs, dish hospitals, and pediatric hospitals. So, you know, doesn't doesn't make sense to to exclude them, um, or the handful of cancer hospitals. But I, I get why they, you know, might leave them out. But they're they're already being beat up by orphan drug exclusion and GPO prohibitions, and all cancer hospitals get lumped into the larger hospitals for all these other provisions. It just makes it harder and harder for even our few cancer hospitals to operate. Yeah. All right, contract pharmacy. I think everybody agrees that we need to, you know, add 
some rigor to this 340B statute to address the need for for contract pharmacy and provision of contract pharmacy. But they've got some, you know, again, some significant proposals here that would limit contract pharmacy opportunities for our larger hospitals. So, you know, contract pharmacies, they're, they're you know, they're, they're suggesting, you know, in their first bullet point that covered entities are going to have to have policies and procedures to prevent diversion and duplicate discount. That makes sense. But, you know, the language in their proposal says that contract pharmacies that don't ensure that the relevant requirements are met will be banned from participating in the program. And you know, historically, it's always been the covered entity that assumes responsibility for compliance. But here they're you know, su- su- suggesting that the contract pharmacy may have to have a requirement in place to uh, ensure uh, program compliance. That, that doesn't, I don't know if that's you know, just not well thought out you know, suggestion or, or how that, again, pragmatically would work. Well, and it's, I would argue that in most cases, you know, the pharmacies actually don't do that much. It's the TPAs that do it. Yeah. So, and sometimes it's the covered entity who picks the TPA in most cases, right? There's some um, chains that have their specific requirements. So there's that. But yeah, I, I, I think that's interesting. I almost, I'm curious why, why not the TPA um, in conjunction with the contract pharmacy? Since yeah. often contract pharmacies aren't really doing much for their part other than being a dispenser. I mean, that's a critical part, but they're not doing any decision-making in the process. Yeah. You know, and another thing that's generated a lot of discussion is, you know, limiting access to specialty mail-order pharmacies. So contract pharmacies are going to need to be located in the service where the covered entity provides care. Um, Use of mail-order or specialty pharmacies only going to apply under certain circumstances. So grantees will have kind of unrestricted access to specialty or mail-order pharmacies through contract pharmacy channels. And then patients of sole community hospitals or critical access hospitals that live in an area that's not designated as a metropolitan statistical area. So your rural patients of sole community and critical access hospitals could potentially qualify for 340B drugs, especially in mail order. But again, no RRCs, no dishes, no pediatric hospitals, and also no patients who maybe live in a metropolitan area that are seen at a sole community or critical access hospital. Well, and and on top of that, they have a provision that they want to add that says contract pharmacies should only be limited to limited to underserved areas and underserved yeah. populations, which I was like, oh my gosh, but I mean, you know, it's it's not it's not like there's these these perfect lines in these communities where this is an underserved population, this is and I know there's some measurements there, but you've you still have patients in need in, in non-medically underserved areas. And what about those patients? Um, they have to go drive to a medically underserved area just because they happen to live in, you know, affordable housing in, in an area that's not designated that way. So definitely think there's some issues with some of the provisions um, there on, on how does that really get operationalized and, and does that harm patient care um, if we're unable to provide charity care at an affordable rate for patients because just because of them having to live in a, in a slightly nicer area, even if where they live is not a nice nice area. Next section of the policy principles are is, is around patient affordability. And we, we talked a little bit about this last time we kind of went over the high-level overview. You know, grantees have, you know, sliding fee scale requirements based on their being a recipient of a federal grant, but also suggesting that 340B hospitals need to implement a similar sliding fee scale for, for drugs. And again, I think, you know, I understand the, the intent of that um, proposal trying to pass through 340B savings or 340B discounts to reduce patients' out-of-pocket expense. But in the hospital setting, in the acute care setting, you know, it's, it's very difficult to implement the methodology of applying a sliding fee scale 
um, that you see out in the grantee world, right? Exactly, exactly. And I, I got to tell you, you know, what the scary one is here. I'm sure you've seen it. Um, they want they want to um, rope the OIG into doing annual random reviews of contract pharmacy policy and procedures to evaluate whether these discounts are in fact being provided to patients who qualify. So, so adding quite a bit of teeth, right? When you talk OIG, now you're talking about OIG potential fines. Now you're talking about 150% or 50% over what you, you know, your costs are, whatever. I'm not yeah. sure how the fines work in this case, but, but interesting that, yeah, they want to include the OIG for a little bit more enforcement capability um, yeah. on these. Yeah, discounts. I mean, you're, you're looking at civil monetary penalties if you're unable to comply with this. And, you know, I think patients that are seen for acute care, you know, services at hospitals. I mean, they're not in a position to provide the tax documentation or the financial information that you typically, you know, gather when you're a grantee patient um, to make the calculation around your 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 relevant income to the federal poverty level to invoke the the sliding fee scale. So again, I think it's practically very difficult for hospitals to wrap their kind of minds around how they would implement. Uh, a sliding fee scale similar to what's done in the clinic space. Right. And again, I know, yeah, we talked about it. You know, clinics often have a finite population, it, you know, less in and out or acute care hospitals with acute care visits, especially ER, uh, not, not just not the same. Hey, before I we, we kind of move off, because one thing we want to point out, you know, we talked about it doesn't really impact grantees, but not necessarily true. Um, FQHC lookalikes are kind of being roped into the hospitals. Almost, it feels like the CHCs are, hey, FQHC, yes, safe. FQHC lookalike, yeah, you operate more like a hospital. You, you're part of that. So that was a sub bullet we should point out. Yeah. Um, they they actually, out. Um, they, the document does take take some shots at FQHC lookalikes as well. Yeah. All right. Next section is covered entity eligibility. So again, the proposal or the you know, this, this organization is kind of challenging the the methodology with which hospitals have qualified as a 340B covered entity, primarily reliant on, you know, a, a dish above a certain uh, threshold. So they're suggesting we need to establish new hospital eligibility standards for dish hospitals, um, looking at probably some element of, of charity care, also limiting the the scope of their 340B program to not more than five retail contract pharmacies, again, excluding specialty or mail orders. So really tightening up the footprint that a 340B hospital might have um, based on these proposals. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think the five contract pharmacies is going to be a difficult one, right? And so again, to remind everybody, it's five contract pharmacies, um, uh, for dish hospitals specifically is, is how it's mentioned, not even for other covered entity types. Um, and so, but, you know, if you think about some of our dish hospital clients, they're spread out over multiple counties in some case, right? They're some of your bigger hospitals because that's, they are the healthcare for that area. And so to go five contract pharmacies just, and, and not include specialty, um, that's, that's seems, that's, that seems like they won't be able to serve their patient population or they're going to be very creative on how they do that. Especially yeah. if, you, if you have to provide 200% um, or discounts, a sliding fee scale for everyone who's 200% poverty level or less. It's like, hey, you guys got to do all these things. Oh, but wait, we're going to take away tools for you to be able to do that. You're going to have to figure out how to do that with just five contract pharmacies if you don't have your own. Yeah. That and so now sense. I think they're going to have to open up their own pharmacies if they truly need to meet this 200%. Because what happens if patients go just don't have one of the five pharmacies near them? Like, we're kind of impacting patient care now all of a sudden. So that, that's a little scary yeah, because again, you've got you know you've got some some hospitals that really 
their, their child site locations are distributed across a wider geographic location. You may have, um, you know, your patient population may have a more heterogeneous payer mix where a variety of different retail pharmacies are either in or out of network for those patients. And they sometimes have limited options. And if we're, you know, again, contracting the number of uh, 340B contract pharmacies that those patients can access down to just a handful, it's going to, you know, create, I think, a lot of inconvenience for patients to be able to access those uh, those pharmacies. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And you know, th there is this whole concept in here about certain hospitals, right? Again, not critical access or uh, sole community, about qualifying under some other eligibility standard. I, I will say this one hasn't been well developed, at least from my perspective. I mean, they're talking about charity care and mm. such as, you know, this, but that one definitely needs a little bit more um, details provided around it. My, my guess is maybe the group looking at it just just didn't have a great answer for it other than, hey, we want this change. We want, you know, dish hospitals and or non-rural hospitals probably be the best way to say it, to have some kind of other qualification besides dish percentage. So, yeah. Um, you, know, you, wonder that, that, you wonder if they're looking at maybe data elements off of uh, Medicare cost report worksheet S10 in terms of yeah, charity yeah. care as a, as a potential um, kind of metric that's going to be included. Right. They didn't mention that. So I thought they'd get more specific because, right, this is about the same information we had. I mean, a little bit more than on the original kind of uh, list we saw. But, um, yeah, that one feels like it needs a little bit more work. And interesting, um, another, another thing they're talking about, eligibility um, for hospitals is that RRCs, again, you know, in our rural referral center, you know, may have the opportunity currently to qualify as a disproportionate share hospital and, um you know, kind of, you know, bypass the orphan drug exclusion. Again, they'd still be subject to GPO exclusion, but depending on the dish percentage at that hospital, an RRC could currently qualify either as an RRC or under a dish, uh, but but they're taking away that option here. Well, yeah, it's there, there, there's that component, which I kind of scratch my head as it's a rural referral center, right? It qualifies as 8% dish with an 8% dish or higher. Mm -hmm. And they're saying, but if they don't treat any rural patients, um, in order to obtain an RRC designation, then they they should be required to qualify as a dish at 11.75%. So you're right. They're almost saying, look, if you're an RRC that doesn't have to treat rural patients, then then you don't qualify as an RRC. They're almost yeah. rewriting Medicare rules here um, for an RRC qualification. I mean, CMS already has definitions and it feels like they, they want to change that a little bit. Yeah, and it, I mean, this is one where they're not really providing any granularity. You know, they've, you know, called out only five contract pharmacies for dish hospitals. But here they're saying RRCs must demonstrate that it treats a reasonable share of rural rural patients. What 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 is a reasonable share? Is that 5% right. of your population? Is it 25% of your population? Does it have to be 50%? I think, you know, clearly they're going to need to establish some some more rigor to what that what that threshold is. But um, there's going to be a lot of debate about what what's a reasonable share of rural pa patients for an RRC to, uh, to qualify as a dish. No, we should talk about the win. There was one small win. It's, it's for critical access hospitals that do qualify as rural emergency hospitals, right? New designation under CMS. Yep. Um, the problem is, of course, those rural emergency hospitals aren't included in 340 programs, so there's a provision to add that. That way, if a critical access hospital could do better financially or operate more efficiently or just, you know, better reimbursement as the rural emergency hospital instead of a critical access hospital, um, that would then qualify, of course, if that provision is kept in and, and approved. But I, I think that's a positive one. That's when we've talked to some of our critical access hospital clients, and it would have been beneficial because um, of, of the way that reimbursement works for the, that hospital type. But um, so I so want to point out the wins um, as well as some of the, the hits. Yeah. 
So kind of related to hospital eligibility, there's also discussion of tightening up child site and subgrantee eligibility. And this, this I think, is really um, you know, probably instigated by that Wall Street Journal article that was um, published back in the summer last year, you know, highlighting a Bon Secours Mercy Hospital in, in Richmond, Virginia, you know, that added, uh, you know, hospital-based infusion practices to their, um, their, their hospital operations. And, you know, again, they're, they're suggesting here child sites of a hospital must be integral to the 340B hospital and provide, again, it's very unclear, meaningful range of clinical, clinically relevant services beyond just in, infusion of drugs. Right. And and what, what I think is a little harder, too, is they're saying each individual site needs to somehow qualify in and of themselves. I'm like, well, that we don't really collect data that way. But, um, you know, that definitely makes registration harder, especially if you if you have a lot of child sites or offsite locations. Um, so, again, probably a bit more wording. But, yeah, I picked up the same thing. They really focus on integral, almost as if they were trying to define integral a little tighter than it's defined today or the fact that it's not defined today. But uh, it definitely expects some some tightening of requirements to become a child site um, if something were to go through here. All right. Um, you know, the the next category of proposals really around, uh, you know, I think a topic that, that most 340B covered entities will be able to get behind, and that's, you know, trying to limit the, the pickpocketing of 340B savings. So um, minimizing or, or um, you know, controlling insurers and for-profit stakeholders involvement in the 340B. So, you know, making sure that 340B covered entities aren't aren't subject to reduce reimbursement for for 340B claims. Yeah, I mean, I like seeing this, right? I mean, all the states were having to do this at state level, so love seeing something around PBMs here. Um, that that actually makes a lot of sense, uh, you know. But also pharmacies and for-profit third parties also limited in some way to charge for their services, but not to you know reap massive gains from the 340B program. I think that makes sense too. Um, and so that definitely, you know, I, I think this one has some definitely positive things for covered entities here. So, I, again, want to want to highlight the positives yep. um, from the hits. Next category, again, one that we I think kind of initially had agreed is is maybe neutral to 340B covered entities, particularly hospital covered entities. Um, and that's the need for claims data clearinghouse. You know, manufacturers are going to need access to data, and CMS is going to need access to data regarding um, inflation rebate penalties, and we may need a clearinghouse for prevention of Medicaid duplicate discount. So, um, again, this is likely, a, a, this is going to be a, a necessary tool, I think, to ensure, you know, appropriate use of the 340B program, right? I, I agree. And, you know, and we didn't say at the beginning, but, you know, one of my kind of high-level thoughts about all of this is this is kind of a wish list, right? This is, hey, you know, NAC, Pharma got together. Here's a wish list. It's combined. It feels like it's probably more two thirds pharma what they're uh, knack, but you know I don't know how this all went down. Well, I, I wasn't uh, I wasn't in the room when it happened. Um, but uh, it feels like some of these are gives and some of these you know it's going to be a negotiation, right? I, I think hopefully even pharma recognizes they're not going to get all of this, but but there's negotiation points in there. So you know you put the wish list in and you know maybe you get half of it. Um, I think this is one in, is an easy one for all sides to look at and say okay. Um, it's going to create some work, but it makes sense, right? We know we need it for the Inflation Reduction Act, like you mentioned. We're going to need it for the, for those rebate um, penalties for Medicare um, against manufacturers. And then, you know, we also need it for duplicate discount. And, the, and manufacturers say, look, we need it for our third-party rebates. Yep. Um, and so there's lots of reasons for it. I, I think it's part of transparency as well. I, I don't think it – I think it's a neutral. 
Um, and I think it's an area that, that hospitals and, and grantees um, can look and say, yeah, OK, well, let's figure out how to make this happen. I think that's that's the right thing to do for the program. Yeah, they, they provided an appendix in their um, in their proposal that kind of outlines the different data elements that they would like to see included in the claims uh, submissions. You know, it's it's primarily tilted towards or addressed for for retail um, really doesn't describe, you know, a lot of the data elements they're asking for aren't relevant for hospital administered um, 340B drugs. So it seems like they're really focusing on the retail aspect of the 340B program. Yeah, you know, I, I think because, um, you know, hospitals are 340B or not, most of the administered drugs are a little more clear cut. Um, yeah. So my guess is they they have pretty some visibility or decent visibility into hospital administered drugs or provider administered drugs, even clinics as well. Less so on the contract pharmacy side. So I think that's a side that has the least amount of um, visibility to what's 340B and not. Next category is uh, transparency. So uh, again, I think this makes sense. We said it was a neutral proposal, but the need for you know transparency, public reporting of some basic information around the 340B program. So standardizing the metrics in which you define your 340B savings and uh, providing some um, insight into the utilization of, of 340B savings at the covered entity level. They are specifying, though, that it would need to be reported out for hospitals, um, both for the parent organization as well as each individual child site. And I, if you think about what they're asking for here, again, just a big administrative burden for each child site to break out what their you know yeah. contribution is to these various elements. So I, I hope this, there's a little give and take here to realize that, you know, I get it. That'd be nice for to get that level of granularity. But again, more costs, more resources, more more work uh, for the covered entities. Um, and, and again, I, you know, I, my, my thought is we need to have them focus on patient care, not collecting more and more and more data. So I think we've got to be a little thoughtful or, or careful about how much um, is really needed. Right. And not to go overboard here and swing too far on the other side of the pendulum for the yeah. hospitals and what needs to be reported out. Yeah, I mean, this 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 is a topic that you, you, you've got to believe that your congressional delegates, regards, regardless of which side of the aisle you sit on, they're going to agree that this is this is a requirement. But we got to you know approach it in a pragmatic fashion that doesn't, you know, become overly burdensome for, for the 340B providers. I think one thing that's that's missing from this discussion around transparency and I, I'm you know curious if it was discussed as NAC and Pharma were putting these proposals together, but there's really a lack of discussion around manufacturer transparency. You know, 340B sales data should be available in the same way that 340B savings data is available by 340B providers. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely agree with that. And then again, the last, uh, I think the last bucket of proposals here, again, we proposed as a neutral um, principle is just, again, giving uh, federal government rulemaking authority to ensure that all of the rules and regulations around the 340B program are uh, abided by. So, you know, giving HRSA rulemaking authority with CMS um, to ensure all provisions of the 340B program are um, are met. Well, and interesting in that governance section, correct? There is that rulemaking for for uh, HRSA, which which we get. Um, yep. But interesting that it's they want them to do it in conjunction with CMS. That's right. You're taking someone, a, a department of HHS and then all of CMS is the way it's worded today uh, and, and saying they've got to do joint rulemaking authority so that everything lines up right with with Inflation Reduction Act, um, duplicate discount prohibition, all these things. Um, so I think that's interesting. And then the second component, which makes sense, is but I, but to me, this is just re, uh, restating current state. And that's 
that federal laws should basically, it, the 340 program should be exclusively federal law, right? They're saying that states shouldn't have the ability to actually create laws around this. Um, and which, you know, I think current states, if there's a federal law around it, it trumps state law. But if there isn't, then state law can be created. And I think that's the problem that probably farm is seeing is that, you know, each individual state can create some rules and the rules can be a little different. Now it makes it hard for the, you know, in each state for them to know what they're supposed to do or what payers are supposed to do. So interesting that they want to really get rid of the ability for states to create any um, laws and regulation in areas that it's currently absent on the federal side. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, covered entities could probably look at this and, and agree like, you know, there, there should, you know, be, you know, oversight of this program that will, you know, re require manufacturers to be compelled to to play ball. Right. You know, if there's contract yeah. pharmacy provisions in the 340B statute and HRSA can enforce um, manufacturing compliance, we won't see the types of restrictions and, you know, various policies, you know, eliminating voluntarily 340B pricing by manufacturers. But covered entities will need to be prepared to, you know, maintain their efforts to remain compliant. The the call for oversight goes uh, goes both ways. Absolutely, yeah. Um, one thing we didn't um, kind of cover, but I think there's mentioned two spots was also for our not-for-profit hospitals. Um, there's a component above there they wanted to strengthen what that that government contract looks like. So I think you know right now it's a little loose, and so they want to strengthen that. But then in this that uh, transparency component, I just wanted to mention, and then they want those contracts to be publicly available. Um, so again, so we're gonna have to be more thoughtful first once we find out what needs to go in those contracts and then what, um, you know, the fact that that could be publicly available, but that's, and then I kept looking, I was like, huh, interesting, interesting wrinkle. I'm not sure the intent of that. Um, yeah. you know, I think it's getting a contract can be difficult sometimes for some hospitals, depending on their geographical location, which government agency that they work with. But, um, you know, I mean, I think that one makes sense, but making them publicly available means that, you know, even the public will be able to see, Hey, we signed this contract to care for indigent population you know are maybe helping the public hold hospitals accountable i'm not, I'm not sure what the purpose of that was all right well I, th I think that's it as far as all the principles rob where do you wh where's this going next where where do we see this <laughs> in the next couple of months kind of gaining traction yeah i, I think i think it's going to be uh, definitely a battle i'm going to put it that way i think it's definitely a battle we're already seeing you know, quite a few hospital organizations to report to be health kind of response, seeing, seeing their response. And it was a strong response saying, hey, um, you know, there, there are some issues here. There's some issues with how this is playing out and how this is going. And I think we need to have open dialogue about it because I think these are going to have significant impacts on hospitals and patient care. Right. I, I get it, a lot of this is preserving our rural and FQHCs. And I totally understand the need for that. But we're still going to impact patient care on the other hospitals that are kind of being for lack of a better word, um, put up on the chopping block, um, I do think we'll lose some hospitals over this, um, especially the qualification component. So, you know, I, I think I, I think a deal is here to get done, but it's going to be a negotiation. I think quite a few of those elements are going to have to be refined or reduced or even removed um, for, for it to get done. Um, I think, you know, the hospitals still provide so much value to patient care. And and, um, and, and I think it's important that we we look at that and address that. Interesting. I just wanted to say a couple quotes um, that I that I read online. One was from the AIDS Healthcare Foundation. Um, now I do think this might be a little over the top, but I get what they're trying to say. It's a deal with the devil is is what they came back and said, and that's one of you know that's that's our AIDS Healthcare Foundation kind of grantee side. I'm um, Doris Matsui, um, huge proponent out of California um, in the House um, Democrat side. Um, uh, said it's just one of the latest attacks on 340B. So I think she's just calling it what it is. Look, it's just another attack. It's it's you know it's it's aimed to reduce 340B 
program um, scope and size and ultimately potentially impact patient care, which is, I think, what she's looking at, um, especially in her areas that she she has constituents that benefit from the program and she wants to make sure those patients can continue to receive that care. But yeah. I think a deal can get done. And I think we have to really look at um, it, whichever side you're on, which ones are the most important to you um, to stay in or stay out, depending on how you're looking at that and and which one, you know, there might be a couple of hills to die on here um, for hospitals. And, and I think they have to get to the table and do that. I, I do recommend whoever you are and whoever's listening that, you know, if you're if you're passionate about it, um, make sure you're talking to your legislators, especially the ones on the Senate Health Committee or the House Energy and Commerce, specifically um, th- there's subcommittees on health um, in those areas, but making sure that you, you're you talking to those people if you have them in your area or in your state um, about what the 340B program means to you and maybe the covered entities you work for or the companies you work for. So um, lots of good grassroots efforts that can be helped here. All right, Rob, great catching up with you. I know you've got to get out for your audit. We're going to take a little break here on the other side. I'll kind of give us a rundown of what to look out for uh, 340B Coalition this week. And um, we'll see everybody in San Diego. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate it. And yep, hopefully we'll see you guys there. Stop by our booth and um, Greg's going to give you all the skinny on all of that. And uh, have a great week, everybody. The 340B Unscripted Podcast is brought to you by Spendman Pharmacy. Have you started using a referral capture solution to help maximize 340B program savings? Spendman Pharmacy delivers the industry's leading solution to help you identify existing and new referral capture opportunities. Our team manages and meets all HRSA expectations, so you'll never be at risk. Visit spendman.com and follow the pharmacy links to learn how a referral capture solution can help drive 340B savings for your organization. Hey everyone, welcome back again. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. You know, if you're listening to this, we're we're on our way to uh, San Diego for the 340B Winter Coalition Conference. Um, the Spendman team is going to be hanging out. Make sure you stop by our booth, talk with folks there around 340B compliance, 340B optimization, and anything that's going on in the pharmacy world. Wanted to share a few folks that are presenting at the coalition. We've got great clients and friends in the 340B community that are going to be featured during the coalition. Hannah Rowell, she's the Assistant Director of Pharmacy at the Erie Family Health Center. Um, She's going to be presenting on the Tuesday Track 1 session, talking about contract pharmacy operations. She's also hosting a few pre-conference workshops, so make sure you check out um, her topic on Tuesday, as well as any of those pre-conference workshops that you might be registered for. Lisa Nelson, she's a pharmacy director at Unity Care in Northwest. Um, on Tuesday, during the track four session for CHC, she's going to be talking about elevating pharmacies' involvement in visibility and senior senior leadership at the organization. So a uh, great leadership discussion probably coming out from, uh, from that session with, with Lisa. Arsalan Shaw, he's Senior Director of Pharmacy at Central City Concern. Um, he'll be talking at the Tuesday Track 3 session, a focus on behavioral health services that are supported by 340B providers. Nick Gnatt is Director of Ambulatory Pharmacy at Unity Point. He's going to be involved in the Tuesday Track 2 session discussing manufacturer contract pharmacy restrictions. Alexandra Soto, she's Finance Director out of Memorial Healthcare. She'll be at the Tuesday Track 1 Roundtable discussion on 340B registration roadblocks and is also hosting one of the pre-conference workshops on Monday focusing on HRSA 340B audits. Kristen Chupka, she's the 340B System Pharmacy Director at Dartmouth Health. She'll also be with Alex for that Tuesday Track 1 Roundtable discussion on 340B registration issues. And then again, we'll be talking on Tuesday in a Track 2 session on specialty pharmacy accreditation. 
Ashley Covert. She's System Director of Pharmacy Supply Chain at Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center. Um, she'll be at the Wednesday Track 1 session on inventory management with a focus on biosimilars and their intersection with 340B strategic planning, and then also has an early Wednesday morning session on the future of the drug supply chain. Chris Petrovitsky is the Pharmacy Business Director at Duke. He'll be at the Tuesday uh, Track 4 Roundtable discussion on informatics and information technology, 340B and the intersection of 340B operations with electronic health records, TPAs, split billers, and all the different systems that are used to help manage your 340B program. And then finally, we've got our very own Heidi Larson. She's Director of Compliance from our SpendMend Pharmacy team. She'll be involved in the Wednesday breakfast session, uh, Lessons from the Field Part 4 on 340B program compliance and optimization strategies. So if you're at the coalition, make sure you check out each of those folks' uh, presentations. Also, don't forget to stop by booth 319 and talk to the SpendMen Pharmacy team. Have a great week and we'll catch you the next time. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.